this is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. Hello, peeps. It's time for more book talk. This week, I'll be sharing my thoughts on Did You Hear About Kitty Carr by Crystal Smith-Paul, The Last Word by Taylor Adams, and Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajay-Brenner. If you've been around for any amount of time, you know the drill. I'm going to kick things off by looking at some of this week's new releases in the adult and young adult categories. This is the segment also known as Let's See How Many Author Names Odell Will Butcher Today. By the way, thanks to some Instagram friends, I am now using the calendar on Publishers Weekly to curate my list. Hopefully, this is more accurate. I know book release dates change all the time, so at the time of this recording... Here's what I have for the week. First up is Banyan Moon by Tao Tai. This is a sweeping, evocative debut novel following three generations of Vietnamese-American women reeling from the death of their matriarch, revealing the family's inherited burdens, buried secrets, and unlikely love stories. Then we have Before She Finds Me by Heather Chavez. In this shocking thriller, two unlikely mothers race to uncover the truth behind a horrific attack even after it becomes clear that the truth will destroy one of their families. Then we have Dead Eleven by Jimmy Giuliano. On a creepy island where everyone has a strange obsession with the year 1994, a newcomer arrives, hoping to learn the truth about her son's death, but finds herself pulled deeper and deeper into the bizarrely insular community and their complicated rules. Next is Dead Man's Wake by Paul Doiron, D-O-I-R-O-N. Game Warden Mike Bowditch's engagement party is interrupted by the discovery of a gruesome double murder. Next is Have You Seen Her by Catherine McKenzie, a thrilling and timely novel about three women with dark secrets whose lives intersect in the picturesque and perilous Yosemite National Park. Then we have How to Be Remembered by Michael Thompson, a big-hearted novel following a man who can never be remembered and his journey to become unforgettable. Next is Invisible Sun by Kim Johnson. From the award-winning and critically acclaimed author of This Is My America comes another thriller about a wrongly accused teen desperate to reclaim both his innocence and his first love. Next is Lay Your Body Down by Amy Souter Clark. A young woman returns to her rural Minnesota hometown where a radical evangelical pastor has poisoned everyone's minds and may be covering up a murder. Then we have Manslaughter Park by Terza Price. In this queer retelling of the classic novel and third book in Terza Price's Jane Austen murder mystery series, Mansfield Park is the center of a deadly accident. Or is it? Then we have A Most Agreeable Murder by Julia Seals. 
When a wealthy bachelor drops dead at a ball, a young lady takes on the decidedly improper role of detective in this action-packed debut comedy of manners and murder. Next is The Night It Ended by Katie Garner. This stunning suspense debut is told with a narrative that intertwines with the transcript of an anonymous interview, beginning a twisting path where nothing and no one is what it seems. Next is Save What's Left by Elizabeth Castellano, an outrageously funny debut novel about a woman who moves to a small beach town looking for peace, only to find herself in an all-out war with her neighbors. Then we have Sing Me to Sleep by Gabby Burton. In this dark and seductive YA fantasy debut, a siren must choose between protecting her family and following her heart in a prejudiced kingdom where her existence is illegal. Then we have Someone You Love by Robin Constantine, a deeply emotional and highly romantic tale of two teens who fall in love while grieving the one person who makes their love impossible. And then we have The Ninth Man by Steve Barry with Grant Blackwood, a thrilling, action-packed historical adventure that sends Luke Daniels on an international manhunt for the truth about the assassination of President John Kennedy. Next is The Beach at Summerlee by Beatrice Williams, a ravishing summer read taking readers back to a mid-century New England rich with secrets and Cold War intrigue. Next is The First Ladies by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray, a novel about the extraordinary partnership between First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and civil rights activist Mary McLeod Bethune, an unlikely friendship that changed the world. Then we have The Last Sinner by Lisa Jackson, a gripping novel of suspense featuring two veteran homicide detectives matching wits with a twisted serial killer lurking in the shadows of New Orleans. And then we have The Quiet Part Out Loud by Deborah Crossland. No, this is not the story of my life. This searing and heart-rending teen novel follows an ex-couple as they struggle to reunite in the wake of a devastating earthquake. Then we have The Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donoghue. Rachel Murray is 21 years old, platonically infatuated with her housemate James, and less than platonically infatuated with her enigmatic married English professor, Dr. Byrne. Over the course of a year, as Rachel and James' lives become more and more deeply entwined with those of Dr. Byrne and his perfect wife, Deanie, tensions rise and a shocking secret threatens everything they hold dear. Next is The Seven-Year Slip by Ashley Poston. An overworked book publicist with a perfectly planned future hits a snag when she falls in love with her temporary roommate, only to discover he lived seven years in the past. Then we have The Shadow Sister by Lily Mead. What happened to Sutton? The more Casey starts uncovering her sister's secrets, the more questions she has. Did she really know her sister? Why is no one talking about the other girls who have gone missing in their area? And what will it take to uncover the truth? Then we have The Wife App by Carolyn Mackler. Three best friends decide they're finally done with their ex-husbands taking their work as wives and moms for granted. They're ready to monetize the mental load, stick it to their exes, and have a wild ride in the process. Then we have What Happens After Midnight by K.L. Walther. Lily Hopper has two more weeks until she's officially finished with boarding school. With graduation quickly approaching, Lily is worried that she somehow missed out on the fun of being in high school. So, when she receives a mysterious note inviting her to join the anonymous senior class jester and executing the end-of-year prank, Lily sees her chance to put her goody-two-shoes reputation behind her. And lastly, Will They or Won't They by Ava Wilder. On screen, they're in love. Off screen, they can't stand each other. 
Two co-stars with a complex history reunite to film the final season of a beloved paranormal drama in this tension-filled will-they-won't-they romance. I don't have anything pre-ordered this week, but I do have several on this week's new releases that I'm interested in. That would include Have You Seen Her by Catherine McKenzie, How to Be Remembered by Michael Thompson, and Invisible Sun by Kim Johnson. This week, at least being the week that I recorded this episode, I bought physical copies of some books that have been out for a while, but I was inspired by some of the bookstagram folks. These books included You've Reached Sam by Dustin Tao, If Tomorrow Doesn't Come by Jen St. Jude, You'd Be Home Now by Kathleen Glasgow, and then I bought a hardcover copy of Hello Beautiful by Anna Politano because I loved it so much I needed a physical copy on my shelves. I also received arcs of What Waits in the Woods by Terry Parlato and Who We Are Now by Lauren Chamberlain, courtesy of the publishers via NetGalley, in exchange for an honest review. For more up-to-date information on what new books have hit my shelves and what I'm currently reading, check out the show on Instagram. The handle is at JustReadItAlreadyPod. Okay, let's kick off the reviews. I'm going to start with Crystal Smith-Paul's Did You Hear About Kitty Carr? This book was first published by Henry Holton Company on May 2nd, 2023, and was Reese's book club pick that same month. The synopsis reads, When Kitty Carr Tate, a white icon of the silver screen, dies and bequeaths her multi-million dollar estate to the St. John sisters, three young wealthy black women, it prompts questions. Lots of questions. A celebrity in her own right, Elise St. John would rather focus on sorting out Kitty's affairs than deal with the press but what she discovers in one of Kitty's journals rocks her world harder than any other brewing scandal could. And between a cheating fiancé and the fallout from a controversial social media post, there are plenty. The truth behind Kitty's ascent to stardom from her beginnings in the segregated South threatens to expose a web of unexpected family ties, debts owed, and debatable crimes that could, with one pull, unravel the all-American fabric of the St. John sisters and those closest to them. As Elise digs deeper into Kitty's past, she must also turn the lens upon herself, confronting the gifts and burdens of her own choices and the power that the secrets of the dead hold over the living. Did You Hear About Kitty Carr is a sprawling page-turner set against the backdrop of the Hollywood machine, an insightful and nuanced look at the inheritances of family, race, and gender, and the choices some women make to break free of them. In my opinion, one of the things that worked against this book is that it was often marketed as for fans of The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. I want to point out, the only thing this book has in common with Evelyn Hugo is the fact that the main characters in both books worked in Hollywood. I almost feel like marketing this book in that way might have hurt it because I didn't feel as though they were anything alike. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I feel like this book can stand perfectly on its own without that tag. I felt that the tone, the characters, and the pace of both books were very, very different. While The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo dealt with Evelyn's career in Hollywood, being married to several men while hiding her love for a fellow actress, this book focuses on a biracial woman from the South who passes as white and is able to find great success because of that. While reading the book, it made me curious which stars from the past actually passed as white. And I was surprised to learn that Carol Channing's father was biracial, but she didn't say anything about this until 2002, when at the age of 81, she released a memoir titled Just Lucky I Guess, and she called it out there. 
On the flip side of that, there was Freddie Washington, who could easily pass as white and even played a light-skinned black woman posing as white in the 1934 film Imitation of Life. However, Freddie embraced her heritage, and according to liveabout.com, the only time Freddie ever used her light skin to pass as white was when she would go into establishments to buy food for her husband and his bandmates, who were all dark-skinned and not allowed in these establishments. There's also a fascinating article on NPR's Code Switch, titled A Chosen Exile, Black People Passing in White America. It was written in October of 2014. You can find it by Googling it. I would highly recommend looking into it. It's a very interesting article. I just love that podcast, though. Anyway, back to the book. It alternates between past and present. Present day is told from Elise St. John's point of view. Elise is a black actress and the daughter of another famed actress who has been nominated for an Academy Award. She's engaged to another very popular Hollywood actor, seems to live the dream, but what the public doesn't know is that Elise's fiancé has been having an affair, and she knows it. And honestly, she doesn't really care. Elise recently dropped a controversial social media post, and her publicist fears it might hurt her chances at the Oscar. So she's lying low in L.A. at her parents' house. Now, not only is the press on her for this, but they're also curious as to why Kitty Carr, a very popular white starlet back in the day who recently passed away, has left her estate to Elise and her sisters. As Elise digs into Kitty's past, we're taken back and learn about Kitty's upbringing and how she was the product of a white man raping her mother. Her mother was a housekeeper for a wealthy white family. We hear about Kitty's upbringing, her previous name was Mary, and eventually learn how her mother sent her to L.A. to live with a friend so that she could live out her life as a white woman and enjoy the privileges of white life that she would never see as a black woman in the South. Once she gets to Hollywood and settles into her new identity, Kitty works her way up in the film industry, fighting misogyny and exploitation, among other things. She also meets several other light-skinned black women who pass as white and eventually joins their efforts in raising money and using it to help the civil rights movement of the 1960s. This book covers some very important and very enlightening topics, and while I enjoyed it, I didn't really love it. I think it was mostly because of the pacing. It just felt off to me. Sometimes I felt the story dragged a bit and I found myself drifting off. I feel like a lot of Kitty's early life could have been tightened up a bit. I felt the book picked up more when she headed to LA. I also would have liked to know a little more about Elise and her fiance's relationship because as it stands, I didn't really care that they were splitting up because I didn't really know enough about them. But now that I think about it, I think that entire plot point could have been left out and it wouldn't have affected the book at all. They could have just mentioned that maybe she recently broke up with her fiancé or something. It didn't really add a whole lot to the story. I also felt like there were a bunch of characters that I didn't get to know very well. They all were important to the story, but I didn't know them, so I didn't feel the way I probably should have felt toward them. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. While I felt the book could have been tighter in these areas, I did enjoy it, and it's one I would recommend to friends who enjoy historical fiction. I gave it three and a half stars, personally, and then three stars on Goodreads. It's time for a quick break. I'll be right back. Now, excuse me while I rave about The Last Word by Taylor Adams. 
This book was first published on April 25th, 2023 by William Morrow. And the synopsis reads, After posting a negative book review, a woman living in a remote location begins to wonder if the author is a little touchy or very, very dangerous. In this pulse-pounding novel of psychological suspense and terror from the critically acclaimed author of No Exit and Hairpin Bridge. Emma Carpenter lives in isolation with her golden retriever Laika, house-sitting an old beachfront home on the rainy Washington coast. Her only human contact is her enigmatic old neighbor, Deke, and via text, the house's owner, Jules. One day she reads a poorly written but gruesome horror novel by the author H.G. Kane and posts a one-star review that drags her into an online argument with none other than the author himself. Soon after, disturbing incidents start to occur at night. To Emma, this can't just be a coincidence. It was strange enough for this author to bicker with her online about a lousy review. Could he be stalking her too? As Emma digs into Kane's life and work, she learns he has published 16 other novels, all similarly sadistic tales of stalking and murder. But who is he? How did he find her? And what else is he capable of? Any of us who have ever left a negative review have probably thought, should I bother? I know I have had that feeling several times in the past. A friend recently asked me if I bother reviewing books that I don't like, and I said, well, yeah, unless I don't finish it, then I don't feel like it's fair to the author to review something that I didn't finish since I only read a portion of the book. I also don't feel the need to proclaim to the world that I didn't finish it unless I'm asked about it. So they asked why I feel the need to post these reviews, and it's not that I feel the need to post them, I just, I explained that if I take the time to finish the book, I'm going to share my thoughts on it. I don't mean any ill will, I've said this many times, books are subjective, some will resonate with some readers while they won't with others. My reviews are never meant to tear down the author or their work. Writing a book and then publishing it is stressful. It's a personal thing, so I try to handle my reviews with care, even if I don't like the book. I'll often take a step back once I'm done, maybe wait a few days after I've finished and then write my review and do my best to stick with the facts. Call out what I liked or disliked, why, and leave it at that. I also do a weekly podcast. I review at least three books per episode, so if I finish a book that I didn't connect with and then don't review it on the show, I have now put myself behind. I feel like if I put the time into reading it, I'm going to put the time into sharing my thoughts. I think I mentioned on a past episode that I used to run a book review blog several years ago. And just as there are now, there were times when I read a book that I did not like. On one occasion, an author had sent their book to me directly, asking for an honest review, so I obliged. It wasn't my favorite book, but in my review, I kept it factual. I left out the snark, which anyone who knows me knows that takes a lot of effort. But this particular author was pissed. They emailed me several times asking if I would please talk to them and give them a chance to change the book and then maybe read it again. And I'm thinking, why am I going to put myself through that again? So I politely declined, told them I had a backlog of books to review. I didn't have time to read their book again. A couple of weeks later, they were emailing me pretty much every day, telling me that if I didn't take the book review down, they were going to sue me. Now, I knew they had no leg to stand on. I had the email string where they had asked me for the honest review. So there was nothing they could do, but I did oblige. I took the review down just to get them off my back, and then I blocked them and left it at that. So when Emma Carter, our main character in The Last Word, leaves the single star review, and then is almost immediately contacted by the author asking her to take the review down, 
had a little PTSD. And then when she replied, I cringed. And then when she kept replying, almost egging him on, I literally said, girl, you better stop. And she didn't. And about halfway through the first quarter of the book, she really wished she had. As the synopsis tells us, Emma is house-sitting on the Washington coast for a woman whose ad she answered online. The woman lives in Portland, needed someone to stay at her home for a few months during the off-season. Now, most of the people in the area had left when the season changed from summer to fall and then to winter. Emma's pretty isolated, aside from the old man who lives a few yards away. Now, Emma doesn't know him, they've never met in person. She just knows that his name is Deke, and the two have been exchanging messages and playing hangman using whiteboards and telescopes to see each other's answers. Now, this is one of the things I thought was kind of weird in the book. Like, who has a whiteboard hanging out in their living room so they can communicate with a neighbor across the way? That seemed weird. Anyway, Emma's perfectly fine with the whiteboard relationship. She's recently been through a traumatic event, and isolation is exactly what she needs right now. It's just her and her dog, which honestly, that sounds like heaven to me. Emma passes her time with walks on the beach and free or cheaply priced ebooks that she reads on her Kindle. Or at least that was how she spent her time before she left her one-star review. Now she has to deal with freaky things like an unknown stranger in a demon mask showing up on the security camera and strange sounds in the house. She's also almost positive that she's seen a man standing in her bedroom at night. But that's crazy, right? How could he have gotten in? She's the only one with a key. Jules, the landlady, lives in Portland. Not possible. She figures it just has to be the stress and her overactive imagination. At least that's what she thinks until someone shows up at her place one night during a torrential rainstorm claiming to be her neighbor, but Emma knows better. Her sixth sense tells her not to trust this man, and rightly so because it wasn't her neighbor. This is when the game of cat and mouse ensues. Despite her best efforts, this guy is going to get into her house one way or another. As expected, the guy is the author of the books and it soon becomes apparent to Emma his books might be based on actual murders that he has committed and she could quite possibly wind up in his next book. I loved reading this book. Was it perfect? No. Were there plot points that were likely implausible? Absolutely. Did I care? Hell no. I was having so much fun that I didn't give any kind of shit how implausible it was. Nothing was so over the top that I couldn't suspend disbelief enough to get past it. What I loved the most was that the twists did not stop coming. I felt pretty confident right out of the gate that Deke, the old man neighbor, was in on it. But then the big hulking HG Kane showed up, blowing that theory out the window. Or did it? Yes. But then no. But then there was another twist and a death, and another twist, and before I knew it, I didn't know which way was up, who was dead, dying, or what my name was. Not until the last few pages was I finally able to breathe and get some peace. If you like a twisty, turny, action-packed book with lots of tension, lots of suspense, this, my friend, is your jam. I loved it, and I will definitely read more by this author. It should come as no surprise that I gave this one 5 out of 5 stars. Okay. I am going to close things out with the bloody yet brilliant Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajebrenya. This book was first published on May 2nd, 2023 by Pantheon and was Jenna's book club pick on the Today Show that same month. The synopsis reads, Two top women gladiators fight for their freedom within a depraved private prison system not so far removed from America's own. Loretta Thurwar and Hamara Hurricane Stack Stacker 
are the stars of Chain Gang All-Stars, the cornerstone of CAPE, or Criminal Action Penal Entertainment, a highly popular, highly controversial, profit-raising program in America's increasingly dominant private prison industry. It's the return of the gladiators, and prisoners are competing for the ultimate prize, their freedom. In CAPE, prisoners travel as links in chain gangs, competing in death matches for packed arenas with righteous protesters at the gates. Thurwar and Stax, both teammates and lovers, are the fan favorites. And if all goes well, Thurwar will be free in just a few matches, a fact she carries as heavily as her lethal hammer. As she prepares to leave her fellow Lynx, she considers how she might help preserve their humanity in defiance of these so-called games. But Cape's corporate owners will stop at nothing to protect their status quo, and the obstacles they lay in Thurwar's path have devastating consequences. Moving from the Lynx in the field to the protesters to the Cape employees and beyond, Chain Gang All-Stars is a kaleidoscopic, excoriating look at the American prison system's unholy alliance of systemic racism, unchecked capitalism, and mass incarceration, and a clear-eyed reckoning with what freedom in this country really means. Y'all, this book was so damn good. I feel pretty fortunate to have read two books back-to-back that blew me away. Like the last word, this was another five-star read. It's full of action and suspense and packs a really hefty emotional punch as well. While the book obviously takes place in the distant future, I wouldn't be surprised if something like this were to be announced in the coming weeks. Seriously, would I be disgusted? Yeah. Surprised? No. Writers are currently on strike, and the last time this happened, we saw an onslaught of reality TV swoop in to poison our brains. The reality TV landscape is vast and covers pretty much everything these days. Everything except prisoners battling to the death, so why not? The scenario presented in this book is the wet dream of greedy executives and white racist Republicans. If you know anything about our broken prison system, a private, for-profit prison system in many cases, then you'll understand why I feel that way. As the synopsis laid out, the basic premise of this book is that a company known as CAPE, which is the acronym for Criminal Action Penal Entertainment, now exists in the United States. CAPE offers prisoners the chance to get out of prison, but to do so, they have to sign a contract where they agree to fight other prisoners to the death in televised death matches. Now think of the old TV game show American Gladiators, except on this show, they're fighting with actual weapons, not those oversized stuffed Q-tip looking things. And at the end, someone dies a pretty gruesome death. The contestants work their way up the ranks, and if they can survive several death matches in a row without being killed, they will earn their freedom. Prisoners are put into different groups called chain gangs, where each member is a link in the chain, and the rule stands that anyone in a chain gang will not have to fight another member of their gang. Now that doesn't stop members of the same chain gang from killing one another, but it means that they'll never formally be pitted against one another in a televised match. To keep things interesting, the contestants, or prisoners, are taken and dropped off in various locations. They're controlled by these electronic devices that act not only as handcuffs, but then they can also inflict pain on you, or even kill you. So the prisoners hang out at camps, and then at certain times throughout the day, they're forced to walk to specific locations where their next match will be held. Sometimes along the way, the producers will up the excitement by randomly throwing their group into a melee match with another chain gang, where the entire group will fight until one member of one of the groups is killed. At the heart of the novel is Loretta Thorwar. She is the leader of her chain gang and has been around for a while. When we first meet her, she only needs to win three more matches before she's free. She can practically taste her freedom. The public loves her, 
She treats her team with fairness and kindness, especially Hamara Stacker, aka Hurricane Stacks, another member of her team and Loretta's love interest. Stacks is another fan favorite, and she too is moving up in the ranks. It appears as though she and Loretta may be free soon enough and might be able to leave the system and start a life together away from all this, unless the producers find a way to throw in a twist. This is entertainment after all. They have to keep the viewers and their numbers up in order to keep the money flowing, because yay capitalism. While Loretta, Stax, and their crew fight their way to freedom, we also have a few other storylines playing out. We meet some of the other prisoners who are part of the Changing All-Stars family. We also have a storyline that involves a group protesting the fights in the prison system as a whole, and then we also have a storyline that shows the effects of the show on regular citizens, and then another that shows the execs at Cape pulling the strings to keep the cash flowing. While the book was entertaining, it was also sad, and as I mentioned before, I can see this happening. Sadly, we live in a country that doesn't put enough emphasis on rehabilitation of criminals, nor does it care about mental health or addiction treatment and prevention. Instead, we lock people up, and if they're set free, it's typically only a matter of time before they're back in the system. We're really good at ignoring the problem. We're also really easily distracted by bright, shiny things and being worried about things that don't matter rather than fixing the problems that do. And that's exactly what the author is trying to show us. Another thing that I really liked about the book is that the author added footnotes throughout the book that provided factual data about incarceration, facts about the U.S. Penal Code, or in some cases, reminders of actual people who fell victim to police brutality or wrongful conviction. If you read this book, don't skip over the footnotes. They're very important and very eye-opening. This book was highly entertaining and highly educational. It's been described as the Hunger Games for adults, but to me it was so much more than that. I highly recommend it. I will warn you it's bloody, but it's also a bloody good time. As I mentioned earlier, I rated it 5 out of 5 stars on Goodreads. That's it for today. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram for all kinds of book-related fun. My handle there is at justreaditalreadypod. You can also find links to all of the books that I talked about today, as well as Goodreads links to the new releases on the website at justreaditalready.com. Join me next week when I'll share my thoughts on American Mermaid by Julia Langbein or Langbein, The Collected Regrets of Clover by Mickey Brammer, and The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. Have a great week. Music